Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you, Leah, for reading that scripture this morning. Again, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us today. We would love to connect with you. I would love to personally get to know you a little bit better. And so if you would fill out a connect card, you'll see a QR code here on the screen that you can use your phone to scan, or you can go to coaforesthills.org slash connect. Fill out that card. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better, as well as give you a couple of free gifts. Uh, Our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. The gospel is the good news that Jesus gave his life for us, that we could enter into a relationship with God. And we simply received that through faith. Uh, community is uh, the fact that because of that good news, we've been brought together like a family and we love and care for each other in community. And then lastly, mission. Mission is the good news uh, that we get to share that good news. And so we tell others about what Jesus has done for us. Now, a few announcements before we jump into the word this morning. Uh, first of all, uh, coming up on this Wednesday, uh, December 2nd, I can't believe we're already almost to December, uh, we're going to be having a Q&A about the Bible, uh, about you know any questions you might have, like, can I trust the Bible? Um, is the Bible, is it accurate? Uh, what about that one weird verse? I don't understand what it means. Um, you can text your questions to 617-286-2006, as well as register if you go to coahforesthills.org slash events. Uh, you can register for that Zoom Q&A. It's going to be a really great time. So be sure to go ahead and do that. Also coming up on December 13th, we're going to have our next in-person worship gathering. Obviously that's pending what COVID-19 numbers look like. We want to gather together safely, but we're going to assume that we're going to be able to worship so you can pre-register as well on our event page. And then lastly, coming up on Christmas Eve, we have something very special. As a as a network of churches, City in the Hill is a network of churches across Boston. We usually get together on Christmas Eve for a Christmas Eve service. We're not getting to do that this year to be in person, uh, but we have something coming called the Koa Christmas Classic, and this is going to be a lot of fun, and we want you to be a part of that. You can contribute to that, um, whether that's telling people Merry Christmas, or maybe you have something fun that you can be, uh, you can add to that. So we will have some details on how that you can be a part of that. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's vision for his kingdom, what the world would be like if the good news of the gospel were to spread out across the entire world. And he, in this, he gives us this new way to live, uh, this new way that we can live um, that would glorify God and be for the good of our neighbor that leads to flourishing for every person. And in this new way to live, he talks about the, the necessity of a new righteousness, of a deeper greater righteousness um, that we all need to live out this life. That is not just outward actions, but it's the inner state of our heart. And that to do this, you need a new heart, that something has to change in you because you cannot live out the kingdom ethic that Jesus gives us naturally on your own. Jesus calls us to this. 
And so this greater righteousness that he talks about, we saw in chapter five that it's about not doing bad things. And so he gives us the law and the law shows us what we need to do or what we need to avoid. And so Jesus said, you need a greater righteousness when it comes to that, that it's not just outward actions, but it's your heart. In chapter six, we saw this greater righteousness in relation to the good things that you might do for the wrong reason. So giving to the poor or prayer or fasting, you can do those things to make yourself look good or the greater righteousness Righteousness calls us to make God look good in the way that we live. But as we come here to chapter 7, we see how this greater righteousness relates to the world. And so chapter 7 feels a little bit like Jesus is kind of just tagging a bunch of random teachings on here at the end. He's coming to the end. He's trying to get all of his material in. And it's kind of like the old supermarket game where, where somebody would be running around the grocery store and the buzzer is about to go off. So they, they start throwing in you know random items into the, into the cart. So there's like a back scratcher and some Rogaine and some Lowry season, seasoning salt. And they're throwing all these items into the basket and they try to get across the finish line before the buzzer goes off. And it feels that way, but all these things are connected because they're how we relate to others in the world. And in fact, this section of teaching um, actually involves several very common sayings, uh, like the golden rule, like do unto others as you would like for them to do unto you. We, we all say that, um, ask and you shall receive. These are very common statements, but there's another really common statement that we're going to look at today that I guarantee every one of you has probably said at one point in your life, do not judge or judge not. And you can fill in the blank there at home, lest you be judged. Like this is a very common statement. You don't even have to be religious to say this statement. And in fact, we talk, we talk about that statement, don't judge or do not judge or judge not. And the way that it's kind of been framed for us as a culture now is that it's kind of come to mean that you can never tell me that I'm wrong. You can never challenge me because to challenge me would make you judgmental. It would make you intolerant. But this phrase is a little bit like the movie, The Princess Bride. If you've never seen The Princess Bride, it's a wonderful movie back in the 80s. And kind of the plot of this movie is there's this princess who's been kidnapped by these, these three hooligans, these three goons, and they couldn't be any more different. You've got Andre the Giant, who's Fezzik. You've got the, uh, uh, Vizino, Vizini, who's like the little scheming guy. And then you have Inago Montoya, who's like very cool and suave, and he's a swashbuckler. And so and Vizini keeps saying the word inconceivable, and he says it just like that, inconceivable. And at one point, Inago Montoya says, you keep using that word, I don't think you know what it means. When you say judge not in a way that means that you could never be challenged, I don't think you know what it means. You're misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. You're misunderstanding the depth of what Jesus is getting at here. So what, do, what does Jesus actually say about judging others? So it says here, judge not or don't judge. Yes and no. This is a good example of why we have to read the Bible in context. Verse one says, judge not that you be not judged. There are two errors that we tend to fall into when we read those words. The first error is that we miss the meaning. Again, in our culture, we believe that judging means any assessment on someone's actions or someone's thoughts or someone's beliefs. And so simply to disagree would be considered judging. We tend to think about that because we look at this through our own cultural lens and not through the culture that Jesus would be in. 
because we read the words as they were intended to be read. The second error is that we take this verse and we pull it up out of its context and we ignore every other time that the Bible talks about judging. There are lots of verses in the Bible that actually tell you to judge, which seems crazy. In fact, but if you look at verse six, verse six is a type of judgment that you are making. And we'll get to a little bit more about this verse in a little bit, because that's actually one of the most confusing and, uh, and, and kind of controversial verses in the entire Bible. If you look at verses 15 through 20, which we'll cover in a couple of weeks, um, you're making a judgment call on good versus bad fruit. In chapter 18 of Matthew, verses 15 through 20, you, you have to make a judgment call on right behavior and, and the, the idea of, of church discipline. Paul in 1 Corinthians in one chapter, I believe it's in chapter four, tells us not to judge. And then I think in chapter five, he says to judge. So the question seems to be not if we should judge others, but when and how should we judge others? See, biblically, the word to judge can mean lots of different things. And depending on the meaning depends on whether you should judge or not. To judge can mean to discern. It can mean to evaluate. It can mean to assess. It can mean to decide or, or to have good judgment. Or it can mean to condemn. Like you are the one who is condemning someone standing before God, or you are making a judgment statement on their value as a person. And that last one is what Jesus is getting at here. He's condemning the act of condemning. You're, you're not called to condemn others or judge them in that way, but we make judgment calls all the time. We, we should make judgment calls. We make judgment calls on what's true and what's not true based on God's word, on what's biblical and what's unbiblical, on what's just and what's unjust, what's good, what's evil, what's right, what's wrong. And sometimes we have to address people in such a way to make a discerning statement or a discerning decision but we do so in a way that doesn't condemn. We correct, we don't condemn. So don't judge really means do not condemn others because when you condemn or you judge in that way, you're putting yourself into the judgment seat. You're literally playing God in this situation. So if you go back to the garden, all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, where Adam and Eve were, were walking with God, their sin, when they, when they sinned against God, it wasn't just, you know, stealing some fruit from a tree, but by eating of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happened and the consequence was that they would know good and evil like God did. And what happened is that they were never intended to do so. And what we do is, as people who are broken and fallen is we tend to twist good and evil and shape it in our own image to our own liking. And we, were not, we are not created and are not capable to handle it justly. We were never meant to be the judge. We were never meant to be the one who condemns. Because as people, we tend to be pretty quick to judge. We tend to write people off. We tend to be dismissive. We tend to cancel people. We tend to cut people out of our lives when they do something wrong or they hurt us. Because in judging, it's kind of like what Jesus talked about in chapter five about murdering in your heart. You may be saying, I I'm not gonna kill you, but you're dead to me. You judge in this way. You condemn when you refuse to forgive someone. 
when you refuse to show mercy or you refuse to talk to someone or reconcile and you cut them out off or you cut them out of your life or you demean them or devalue them as a person. We're so quick to judge. So a couple of questions you can ask yourself about whether you're quick to judge or not. Are you always waiting to pick apart people's words? Are you, are you listening for people to, to make a misstep in the words they use and be ready to jump on? Are you looking for people to do something wrong? Are you just waiting for them to slip up so you can say, ha, I told you, I knew it, and you can judge and you can, can condemn them? Some great questions that you can ask to discern whether you have a condemning heart or a correcting heart is, is this biblical or is it just my personal preference? There are a lot of things that are just your preference. They're not even a biblical standard. Is this a cultural difference or is it a scriptural one? And sometimes, you know, different cultures handle things different way. Like, you know, for me, I love to be on time. And in fact, I always, always always taught growing up, if you're if you're on time, you're late. You should show up five minutes early. Not every culture, and we're not, we have a multicultural church. Not every culture holds to that. They, they don't have such a strict idea of being on time. That's just a cultural preference. It's not a scriptural one. Is this a matter of the conscience or is it principle? These, these are things we have to ask ourselves, and they help us understand whether we're condemning or whether we're correcting. Listen, there are clearly times we should correct others. Like sin is sin. Evil is evil. Racism is, is evil. It's sinful. We, we should fight for the unborn because we believe they have value and, they, and that it's a living human that has, is made in the image of God. We should definitely seek to correct in those ways, but the way that we do so matters. We need to do so with both love and with truth. Because we lean on one of those, love or truth. Some of you, you lean on trust without love. You know, you're just telling it like it is. And, and you look at people and you say, I can't believe you just don't get it. These are the facts. Facts matter. Facts don't have feelings. Like you tend to go, tend to, go to that. For you, verse one is what you need to look at. Don't judge, don't condemn. But others of us, we lean toward the love without truth which tends to be spineless and it never challenges, it never confronts because sometimes you have to call people out. And, and in fact, verse six kind of gets at this because there, there's a way that people can be hard-hearted like dogs and what is holy and, 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 and people who are acting like pigs. And there's some very strong language from Jesus and talk about the idea of throwing pearls before them. This is something they're not willing to handle or, or wrestle with. Sometimes you have to say something hard out of concern and maybe even expect attack. But the problem, and so verse six is for you, but the problem is that love without truth isn't loving and truth without love isn't truthful. We need both. Jesus is giving us wisdom for how we can correct. So how do we do this? How do you judge correctly? Well, the first thing we see, and Jesus gives us four ways we do this, is we judge introspectively. In other words, you got to look at yourself first. You've got to look at your own heart first, because if you don't get that, if you don't get that, you're going to get this completely wrong. I'm going to say something, and you may not like this. Your biggest problem is your own heart. 
Your biggest problem is not other people. It's the state of your own heart. In 1905, in London, this paper called the Daily News published a letter from someone who, t- who labeled it a heretic. He, that's how he described himself. And he asked the question, what is wrong with the world? And he got flooded with responses. And a man named G.K. Chesterton, who's an incredible Christian thinker, I really highly suggest you read his book, Orthodoxy. Um, he says, the answer to the question, what is wrong is, I am wrong. Until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. In other words, unless you see the sin in your own heart as the biggest problem, you will never correct others well. You'll always blow things out of proportion. You'll always make things a bigger deal than they really are, and you will never see rightly. And this is the reason that Jesus uses the, the, the image of a speck and a log, And really, it's kind of comedic relief. It's kind of a a comical vision here, this vivid picture. So I want you to imagine two brothers who are doing a home improvement project together. They're doing this home improvement project, and they're cutting a large board in a beam. Maybe they're building a a deck. And so back then, there was no electric saw in Jesus' day. But for our purposes, I want us to imagine that. I want us to think about a table saw. And if you've ever worked with a table saw, if a piece of wood binds or kicks back, it can be really scary. So imagine that the board kicks back and a brother, your brother gets a splinter in his eyeball. Okay, that sounds really terrible. You've got to get that splinter out but then you got the rest of the board in your eye. So it'd be, it's kind of ridiculous, and it would kind of look a little bit like this. So imagine that you're talking to your brother who has a splinter in his eyeball, but yet you have a four-foot-long two-by-four sticking out of yours. It looks really ridiculous, doesn't it? Let me ask you this. Who has a bigger problem? You do because you have a two by four sticking out of your eyeball. I think I may have got a a splinter or a speck in my eyeball. Um, You clearly have the bigger problem. And what Jesus is saying is that you have to look at your own heart first, because your biggest problem is your sin before a holy God. That is your biggest problem. If If someone else is always the problem, You need to snap back to reality because when we say that we have no sin, which is what you're saying when you put yourself in the judgment seat, and John says in in 1 John, if you say you have no sin, you're lying, or you ignore your own issues, you will judge harshly. And Jesus here says in verse 5, you're a hypocrite for doing it. Your sins and your, your shortcomings before God are a way bigger deal than someone else's against you. The only time the Bible tells you to focus on yourself is when it comes to your sin. And so just like last week when we looked at anxiety, we were called here to stop and to consider and to examine our lives, to be self-aware, to repent before God, and then take the speck out of our brother's eye. This takes humility. Tim Keller he says about, about our need for humility that it is born from the kingdom righteousness of the spirit of God. It is necessary for having beautiful, gorgeous, truthful, and loving words. There has to be humility there. 
The humility comes when you admit the truth about yourself. The Bible says the truth about yourself is you're a helpless sinner. You have to see yourself first, but therefore, so you can judge wisely. We need to correct in a wise way. Once you've looked at yourself, you need to be careful about how you judge others. In verse two, it says that in the way that you judge, you will, you will be judged and that the, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So in other words, the same kind or the same way that you judge is coming back to you. It, it does this from other people. You tend to be treated the way that others are going to treat you. In verse 12, we see this in the golden rule, that whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's not karma. It's just a general principle of what happens, but also from God. How you judge others says something about how you believe the gospel. Or as Jim Wilkin puts it, the extent that you are hard on others reveals the extent that you don't understand your own salvation. If you judge harshly, just like in chapter six, where it said, if you are unable to forgive, don't expect forgiveness because you don't get the gospel. If you judge harshly, you don't get the gospel. So expect to be judged harshly. There's a warning here, proceed with caution. So here's some more good diagnostic questions to help you judge wisely. Am I lovingly concerned or do I just want to be right? Have I examined my heart first? Is this how I would want someone to correct me if I was an error? See, being wise allows us to receive correction. So because if I'm willing to give correction, I have to be willing to receive correction. And again, if if I'm never wrong and I can never receive correction, there's a problem. I need to look at my own heart. Am, Am I willing to wisely receive correction? Somebody else could be 75% wrong, but is there something in what they're saying that I can learn from? As the old saying goes, eat the fish and spit out the bones. Is there something that I need to hear here? So judge wisely. Kind of going along with this is the idea that we need to judge gently. Now, we, we've all gotten a splinter. I, I almost got one in my eyeball a minute ago. Um, we've all gotten a splinter, and they're terrible. And so when, when you get a splinter, you want someone to remove it gently. Back spring break 1998, we had airbrushed T-shirts and bad haircuts and all of it. I'm playing volleyball at the beach with some friends, and I die for a volleyball, and I end up running my hand down an old wooden fence and get a giant splinter in my index finger. And it hurt so bad. So a man named Terry Johnson whips out his pocket knife. Now, if you know anything about splinters, the best way to get out a splinter is with a pocket knife. Now, Terry could have abruptly said, you know what? We're cutting off the finger. We're not even going to worry about it. We're cutting your finger off. But that's not what he did. He gently and slowly and tenderly took care of the splinter in my finger. Jesus gives us this picture of the speck and of the log because we need to correct gently. If your friend has a splinter in their eyeball, you you have to proceed with gentleness. You proceed with tweezers, with surgical precision. My question for you is, is that how you correct others? Or do you tend to have the subtlety of a sledgehammer when you approach others in error? 
When you do this, do you go for the, dry, the, the mic drop or do you just put people on blast? If that's the way you correct people, you're not being gentle, which means you're not being godly. See, the last thing that anyone needs right now is harsh criticism. That's the last thing that any of us need. And let me tell you this, church, we have the opportunity to be truly countercultural in the midst of a culture of outrage. We can be countercultural and social media is fueling this. In fact, if you've never, if you've seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma, they actually talk about how social media is gearing us towards outrage because it increases clicks. But a gospel culture, which is what we want to embody, wants to build gentleness. What if we were gentle with one another? What if we could be non-accusing, but also honest? What if we could be challenging, but give time for the spirit to change hearts? Not not singling people out or not embarrassing people, not being self-seeking in the way that we correct, but going in gentleness with concern and with care and giving people an opportunity to explain and open up their hearts. Does this mean that we don't have a backbone? Absolutely not. Verse six again says that sometimes there's times that you gotta say the hard word, but you can hold firm to the truth and not be a jerk. You can love others and be, by being gentle and lowly because our firmness is a steadiness. When a surgeon does surgery, they have a firmness and a steadiness of their hand, but also a gentleness and a tenderness and a precision that allows them to be successful. And Jesus corrects us like this. Dane Ortland has a wonderful book called Gentle and Lowly, and he says these words about Jesus. We're buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supreme accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. And because of that, lastly, we judge restoratively. Our correction must always seek to make right broken relationships. And so there's no coincidence at the end of verse five, Jesus responds and, and describes the person as your brother. It's addressed to family. When you have a conversation with a family member and it goes wrong or it's hard, they don't stop being your family. We live in a really relationally thin city where a lot of people here didn't grow up here. And if you did grow up here, people moved away. And so relationships are constantly kind of forming and then dissolving. And so it's really easy for us when there's a conflict to just ignore people and cut them off and write them off. But the problem is, is that you don't cancel family. And the church is described in the Bible as a family. Do you see other people in our church as family? Does that inform how you would correct someone? 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 13 through 15, give a beautiful picture of how you do this rightly. It says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what, he, what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Clearly, Paul in this letter is saying, exhort each other, exhort people to follow and obey Jesus because this is his word. You love truth so much that people feel the weight of it when they don't follow it. But remember that this is your brother and not your enemy. 
We are ministers of reconciliation. And that's the point. And that's why Paul would say, don't grow weary in doing good because this is so important that you're going after your brother's heart. But to get this, you have to see what Jesus did for you. He came as a brother to remove the log out of your eye. Because Jesus is the only one who is worthy of being the judge. He's the only one who sees rightly and sees justly. He's the only one who is actually able to do verse one because he can judge and condemn us. And Jesus has judged us in two ways. He judges us like this. You are a sinner. I am a sinner separated from a holy God because of my sin. But secondly, this is how Jesus judges you. If you've trusted him, you are judged as accepted and as righteous before a holy God who loves you because of what Christ did for you by taking your place on the cross, by taking up himself on a beam of wood to pay for your sins. He traded place with you. And this can be yours by simply doing this, by simply admitting that you're a sinner, admitting that you have no other way to approach God, by believing that Jesus Christ died for you in your place and that that's the only way you can be reconciled to God and confessing your need for him to follow him as your Lord and your Savior. And we would love to talk with you about what that looks like. Please message us here on Facebook, fill out a connect card, type something in the comments. We would love to walk through what it looks like to follow Jesus. Let us not be people who judge quickly or harshly or forcefully or vindictively, but let us be people who love and long after others by looking at our own hearts, by correcting wisely, by correcting gently, by correcting to make relationships right. Let's pray. 